In 2086, two peaceful aliens journeyed to Earth, seeking our help. In return, they gave us the plans for our first hyperdrive, allowing mankind to open the doors to the stars. We have assembled a team of unique individuals to protect Earth and our allies, courageous pioneers committed to the highest ideals of justice and dedicated to preserving law and order across the new frontier. This is Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and on today's show, I'm extremely excited and super honored to have Victor Luo from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's the lead. He's the lead uh, human interface uh, engineer. Is that is that where you're? Yep, that's right. Dude, I'm really happy you're here. I'm so excited and really honored. Um, walk walk me through what is it that you do at at JPL. Sure. So, I mean, technically by trade, I'm a software engineer, so that means I write software. But in our group, I guess it's a little bit more agile, a little bit more startup feely. So we kind of take multiple roles, and what our team works on is mostly human interfaces projects. So things to drive and control the next generation of space robotics and spacecraft. So that includes both design, development, user research, um, all that good stuff. How long have you guys been uh, working? How long have you been involved with the project? And and how long has this uh, human interface initiative been going on at JPL or NASA? Well, I've been at JPL for about six years. I'd say I've been on this team for five. And human interfaces... I mean, this group started maybe three years ago, but it's been something I've been passionate about for for a while. Very cool. And so here's, uh, so I've ran into you at the virtual reality hackathon in San Francisco uh, about I don't know a couple of weeks ago, and I remember seeing um, you and Richard Marks uh, from Sony demonstrating a a demo where you were. Uh, looking into through a Sony Morpheus, you lo- you're looking into uh, a visualization of an of a rover sort of a vehicle on an asteroid in space. Mm-hmm. Um, is that so? Can you t- tell me about that particular demo, uh, or, or how are you involved with it? Sure. So, in spirit of the VR hackathon, we decided to build a hack of our own, and the hack we decided to to build was this sort of robotic manipulation task in a virtual reality environment. So if you could take the operator and put them inside this world as if they were right next to the robot, would that make them, you know, do their jobs better? And then we threw the extra task of, hey, like, what if you could work with someone else? Would that enhance the usability, the the efficacy of uh, the, the tasks that get done? And we chose a robot that was pretty complicated. So it, the robot that we actually used was Athlete, which is a six-legged, sort of two-story, one-ton giant robot. And it has six legs. Each leg has about six degrees of freedom. And so you can imagine controlling and operating it is not a, not a very trivial task. Hmm. So we played, with, we played with several different types of interfaces throughout the, throughout the years to 
see how to control it more manual, uh, more naturally, how to give the operators more control over each of the joints movements and make them feel like they don't need to, you know, use a command line interface anymore. So for people who might not be uh, extremely versed in, in, in the work of NASA and, and what it takes to explore the universe, um, you know, on a fundamental level, why are human interfaces, uh, the subject of human interface, an important, uh, why does, how, is a, how does it play an, an important role in the overall um, sort of coming together of, of, of NASA and, and humanity exploring space? Sure, good question. I, I think, you know, as we get further in space exploration, it's only getting to get harder. We're going to go further, we're going to travel longer distances, we're going to do harder things, we're going to build more complicated robots, more complicated things to help us do our jobs better, help us explore more. And so human interface is really a critical part of that because as things get more complicated, we we got to make sure that the the operators, the people who manage these these intricate robots and devices, that their job doesn't get increasingly complicated. That they still maintain a grasp and an, a, a set amount of control over what to do, what to specify the robot to do, and and that's why I think human interface is going to be a critical part in the future of space exploration. And so, where does virtual reality, um, the technology of telepresence, uh, come into play? You know, how does and how does how how long has NASA been paying attention to telepresence and virtual reality, and you know, and and, and what does it look like today? Yeah, uh, I think you know, I think NASA as a as an agency has looked into visualizations uh, in virtual reality for a long time. You know, I think Ames back in the seventies. Or 80s started looking at it when that was also in the public. I think there's a strong connection between what the commercial industries do and what we try to try to you know focus our time on. Virtual reality was something that sort of came out of our relationship with the industry. Working with a lot of companies in the gaming industry, we've d developed good relationships both on the input side of things and on the output side of things. And so eventually, I mean, as you well, you guys well know, the industry is shifting, and it's there's a lot of focus and excitement around virtual reality. And of course, a lot of excitement means a lot of new products. A lot of new products mean a lot of new developers. And the more that we can leverage what the industry and what the commercial technologies are out there, the better for us, right? The less that we have to build in house. It's far more expensive to build our own controller, our own head-mounted display, than to just go out in the public and buy a controller somewhere. You know? And that's why we've been in, so heavily invested in, in this area of research. And so, in terms of head-mounted dis displays, you know, what, what sorts of uses do you envision and, and what sorts of uses are already being uh, put into place um, with, with the HMD in mind when it comes to NASA? Sure. Uh, lots of things come into mind. Obviously, our focus is not as much on the gaming side, which is, I think, where most of the, the developers are invested right now. Mm -hmm. we, we think of it, uh, I think, in two parts. One is more of a training tool, more of a, an education tool. So if you could virtually train someone 
or virtually help someone operate something that could be extremely valuable, right? Because not everyone can be everywhere at all times. But if you had, you know, experts around the world that could interact with something in space virtually, uh, I think that's extremely valuable. Secondly, it's just all this data that comes down, right? We sometimes people forget that NASA is still doing a ton of ton of stuff in space, and we have dozens of missions currently flying all across the solar system, and they're they're sending data back all the time. But it's really hard to sort of share that with the public in, a, in an intuitive way. So some of this more on the outreach side, but you know, it's if you can build an interface that's good for the scientists and engineers to operate then it's it's a quick spin-off to just transfer that data to then the general public. And so one of the big tasks we're working on right now is sort of uh, converting the data we get back from Mars and giving that asset to the scientists, to the Mars mission scientists, so that they can walk around like they were on Mars, doing their jobs better than they would have done you know, if, if the data came in through their, uh, their 2D computer screens. That's really cool. So then you're you're using the technology sort of in, on on many fronts: the educational, the training, the mm -hmm. uh, the exploratory. That's that's really awesome. And, and have you heard of Andy by any chance? Uh, I was just reading an article from MIT where the Google Lunar X Prize. Um, there's a team of students who uh, have put together a rover that is going to. Uh, that is being launched on the back of a Falcon 9 from SpaceX by the end of 2015. They're planning on using an Oculus Rift um, uh, to direct the robot and send it live video from the moon. Uh, yep. That's really, really cool. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder, you know, in the same vein, you know, how do you think telepresence will affect space travel? Uh, when it comes to using these these robots and um, and, and the technology itself, that's a giant question. <laughs> I, I think it's great what they're doing with the you know the, the Lunar X Prize. I think there's going to be challenges in terms of getting that data down to the operator so that it you know with the, with the time delay, which is I think a couple of seconds. So you know, can they get the data down beforehand, and so the user can kind of navigate? Uh, without that type of lag, because I don't know if you've ever tried, uh, even even the devices currently, there's a small amount of lag, right, mm -hmm. between the display and the rendering. But even if they get that down perfectly, there's still a significant delay between getting that video feedback from the moon. And so to, to efficiently process that, that's going to be the most challenging part of that project. But, you know, I'm all supportive of any of these types of endeavors that push the limits of space exploration. To, to your main question, though, how, how is VR going to affect space exploration? I think, I think it's going to be fantastic. I think it's going to allow more people to feel more involved in what we're doing. I think there's this sort of you know, feeling that, that the general public can't be involved, even though that they're 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 funding us and that they are very excited about the work we do. They want to feel like they're exploring space too, and so we need to f figure out ways to share that journey with them in a way that they can actually participate and contribute back 
mm-hmm. for missions, and that's going to be a fun challenge in the upcoming years. Speaking of sharing the journey, um, are there any talks? I mean, in the back of my head, this feels like something that um, would be amazing if it happened. If are there any talks or a secretive sort of? And I know this is going to be like. All right, I know why. Why did you go here? But like, is there any way that you guys can put a 360 camera on the internal international space station and have it live stream uh, so that people with Oculus Rift can, you know, peek through this camera and be looking out at Earth or wherever uh, because it's a 360 video um, from the international space station? It would that would is that a possibility? Do you think that be there'd be too many technical hurdles? Um, I mean, I think anything's a possibility. I've heard that idea mentioned a few times. I think it's a great idea. I think 360 video is coming online very soon, right? There's all these companies out there that have these 360 cameras mm-hmm. that are going to capture video. And then what you do with them is, is, is going to be, be up to you. I think recently, most recently, the space station has, has a live HD stream of what they can see from the outside, and I know there are companies that have HD 4K streams of what's going on on the outside. So uh, definitely technically feasible because if they if the, there's a there's a four, there's a 360 camera, they just put it on the outside. It's just a matter of will we find value with it and the timeline it would take. And but yeah, I think it's a great idea. Thank you. I think it is. I hope it happens. It'd be just so amazing if I could uh, just uh, be able to see my house in in real time. Um, The other thing that I wanted to ask you is like, you know, what about the uh, idea of utilizing virtual reality um, for the actual astronauts themselves? Um, You know, again, is there any have you been approached by people who've wondered if there if if it'd be possible to send an Oculus Rift or Sony Morpheus up into, again, the International Space Station and an experiment with VR and presence and perception and gravity and zero G? Like, would that, you know, and and what would it do to the human brain? Like, do you have you have you heard of any of those thoughts roaming around? I think it's a fantastic idea. I haven't heard of any research in this area. I don't know what the psychological effects are or, you know, if they're in a, you know, microgravity environment, how that would affect their sense of presence. Um, These are all great questions. I think it's also something I could see in the foreseeable future. And I think it would be really exciting when that day happens. You can imagine all of the training and interactive outreach applications that could be built on top of that. Yeah, there's so much potential. And the other one that I was thinking about as well is, you know, the... uh, uh, the psychology of deep space travel, uh, you know, uh, where whereas Mars is what uh, 200 million miles away from here, something like that, and mm-hmm. you know, I think it was Musk who was saying it, it, it their fast SpaceX fastest rocket will take three months to get there. That's a long. I feel like that's a long time, but humans have been in the ISS for six months to a year, long, even longer than that. But you know, just overall being able to travel from here to there and 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 the psychology of that you know i i wonder like personally i I try to imagine myself being an astronaut and going to mars and you know i i would get homesick and i realized that and this is not a new idea if you read the book ready player one they sort of brush you mention it but using again virtual reality to um create a a a world for them to sort of be sane in and and 
and then have some normalcy and then you know perhaps divide divide up their day like again is is that something that is floating around in in NASA or is it or is it too early in in the technology's progression for this to start you know to, for us to start talking about this i think it's definitely a great conversation to start having i think in the interest like you said of the sort of you're so far away you feel so alone if you could bring that sense of presence of other people or other environments with you mm-hmm. even when you're 200 million miles away i think that would be awesome and then of course in in return being able to share that environment that you're on 200 million miles away back to earth to the public is of course a, i think going to be extremely exciting for the general public just sort of as like a personal interest not related to to my work i i'm going to be part of an expedition to um this is from the mars society mm. and i'm a finalist for a uh, the mars arctic 365 mission which is to send a crew of people around the world to a habitat in the arctic to study what it would be like to live there oh my god and and do stuff for a whole year do science That's and amazing. yeah it's it's kind of nuts and in december we have sort of a prelim so we're going to have a two week trial in utah and one of well my my research mission each person has to come up with their research mission but my research mission is to capture the environment using a number of sensor packages and then be able to create an immersive application that we I can then share with the rest of the public. So, yes. That sounds amazing. Uh and you're a finalist and, and so how long would the um will the whole is this the one where you'll spend 8 months uh out there, you know, just trying to simulate the 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 these well, trying to simu- simulate the environment and the 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 training that it will look like or is this more of a a, a shorter t- time span sort of uh project if you if you're in yeah so i mentioned this there's a two week um sort of a prelim trial uh-huh. run in december and if i get picked then it's a one year wow uh, project and yeah so it, it's going to test everything from like psychological tests to you know how well can you work together how is that isolation and then of course i think you brought up a really good idea of you know can we use vr to increase our productivity and increase our you know happiness up there or in isolation yeah if you want i can let you borrow my oculus rift my dk2 and and yeah take it with you man um <laughs> use it <laughs> i i don't yeah. cuz that's it be it again it'd be a great source of, of research um but th- that sounds amazing so what's uh just on a on a general sense i you know i was having this sort of conversation with a friend and we were, we were talking about um you know what what's hap- what happens after mars uh, i know i'm always way too ahead of myself but uh, but i wonder like does nasa have a, a, a small preliminary plans in terms of you know what's next after mars you know and not just in terms of colonies but like you know mm-hmm. just in really uh, well invested missions I, i again i know about the asteroid that you guys are wrangling um, um but mm-hmm. but you know are we going further than than mars later on uh, in terms of sending bigger robots or or maybe even humans uh i think 
I can tell you what is on the docket, and then I can tell you what I think will, you know, will likely be interesting targets for for investigation in the future. What's on the docket right now is, in addition to the the next Mars mission in 2020, is of course you mentioned the asteroid retrieval mission, asteroid capture mission, basically going out to the asteroid belt, picking an asteroid we want, grabbing it, and pulling it back to lunar or cislunar orbit so that we can investigate it and research and, and mine it for materials. Um, besides from that, there's uh, a Europa Clipper mission, which is the beginnings of an investigation to Europa. Europa is a orbiting moon of Jupiter, and there is more water, we think, on that moon than there is on Earth. And yeah. so, it's, so this moon with, encrusted with a layer of ice, and then inside is, is, is moving water, which means there's a warm core. And so we think the combination of that may lead to, you know, creation of life or the presence of life. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of exciting locations just inside our solar system, be, beyond Mars. There's also, of course, the SLS launch vehicle that's being assembled which is on the path to send humans to Mars. Um, this is, you know, we sent humans to the moon on the Saturn V more like 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of the rejuvenation of that effort, but in this generation. And I think all of this is extremely exciting, and uh, I want the public to get more excited about it. I'm extremely excited about it. I'm 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 gonna do my best to uh, sort of uh, spread my excitement uh, because this is amazing. This is, you, you let me stop you. For, I mean, what you said earlier, that Europa has more water. This moon of of Jupiter, right, has more water than Earth. Yes. That's crazy. And, yeah, and, and then there's of course Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn that has has um, gushing geysers that come out of the moon into the, the atmosphere of Saturn. So there's rushing geysers of, you know, water on Saturn's moons. There's ice underneath, uh, uh, there's flowing water underneath the ice core on the moon of Jupiter. And, I mean, that's just in our solar system. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, I can't even begin to imagine what's out beyond our solar system. And, you know, these, these are just kind of the projects that I think even the NASA's working on. There's, there's all these other projects, I'm sure, that European Space Agency, JAXA, India, China, Russia, all the other agencies are working on. That's going to be more exciting as, as more public interest uh, and private companies come out into play and more of this international collaboration or even international competition, I think, will spawn more of these types of projects. In, in my lifetime, I, I, in, I, I plan on having a very long lifetime. I, I, I'm hopefully with the advances in medicine today, I, I hope that I'll be at least be able to live 200 years. So in that lifetime, I think um, I'm pretty certain that we will find some form of life, whether it might be microbial or a space narwhal sort of uh, creature out there in one of those moons. You know, and if, 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 and I don't like to, I don't mean to get too speculative, but like, you know, how will NASA, you know, what, what will that press release look like? And do you think humanity is quite ready for the discovery of life on another celestial body? 
Oh man. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I I don't I can't even begin to speculate what that would mean for NASA. I think as a human race that would change the way we fundamentally think about the way we are as a society. You know, we sort of invest so much time on ourselves and in, you know, how we interact with each other that we don't really think very often about what's out there. I think if there were signs of life discovered in our lifetimes, that it would change everything. Yeah. And then there would be no going back. Yeah. That, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's something I look forward to within my 200-year lifespan. Um, so it's gonna be, I, I mean, I, yeah. So moving on to virtual reality once again, you know, sure. VR for for NASA, you know, are they using it? Do you feel like it's more, it's gonna be more of an internal tool for developing better rockets and tools, or do you think it'll be more of a tool for education? Um, in terms of uh, how it's viewed in the organization, do you think you know where, where does it? Where do you think it's it's mostly falling into? Because I've seen a, a SpaceX Musk put a video on YouTube of him utilizing an Oculus Rift to play with his you know models of his rocket engines, and um, and I and I wonder whether you guys would utilize that um, or would you use it just to excite people about about space um because on the other hand and again i don't like to get too long-winded but on the other hand i've played games like titans of space demos like titans of space or solar system explorer for the rift and titans of space is so powerful i've teared up in it just just uh being uh engulfed in that sense of scale so where do you think nasa will find the most value for for the technology on that on that front that's a good question. I think we're going to find value in both. I, I touched upon it a little bit before, but initially, of course, I think we're going to invest on the engineering and research side. And as we develop these applications that help scientists and engineers do their work better, it's only natural to think that we can then easily translate these experiences to the general public. And we should, we should, we should keep that in mind as we're developing these more engineering techie experiences. Because there's just so much data that we want to share with the world that, you know, that a smaller amount of that work could be used to turn this into a more public application. Because I, I think, even though it will be extremely valuable to our engineers and scientists, that ultimately getting the public more excited about space is going to be a, a really good thing for the agency. Yeah. Another sort of question on the on, on the feasibility of telerobotics in space. Uh, I listened to a lot of Star Talk with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and a while ago he had a uh, Peter Peter Diamantes uh, on his show. Um, I, I, Peter Diamantes was talking about uh, using uh, asteroids and bringing them down to Earth's orbit. Uh, using the same technique that you guys are using to get your asteroid to the moon um, and then he would mine these asteroids for platinum because he would say the average asteroid has trillions hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of platinum in them um, and Neil was like well you will become the world's first trillionaire 
if you pull that off you know how you know you being at nasa like how feasible is that idea do you think that's that we will see someone being able to pull something like that off and um would that be the beginning of a complete economic uh world market collapse <laughs> because you would flood uh the markets with all this platinum it'd be like the new gold rush right yeah <laughs> i don't know i i think it's great that these companies are so optimistic that they're, they're pushing the boundaries of what's feasible i think what's really exciting you know other than just the the monetary factors is that they're getting commercial private companies interested in space exploration i think that's just going to be a really neat thing to see in the future um because right now there's just not enough funding in in, in the public for space exploration we're a tiny 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 portion of the national budget and and yet we have the most budget nasa does than all the other space agencies so in order to get more interest i think it's going to have to start with the private industry and the limitation on the private industry of course is that they need to make money so if they can make money off of yeah, mining an asteroid then more power to them uh, even if they can't do it getting people excited about these technologies about this industry i think will benefit space exploration as a whole anyways definitely what are some of the challenges that you foresee um in utilizing virtual reality as a, as a as a as a medium to uh again it, it, traverse space um and, and off the top of my head I, i'm thinking about latency for example like if you're going to control the mars rover from earth um i wonder how what that lag is between being it at home and then here in, in earth and then to to the point where the rover receives a signal like you know how do you you know how are you guys thinking about working around those uh, difficult challenges yeah how challenges of the using vr for real latency is definitely one of them there's in terms of operations we i don't think we would ever use vr as sort of a, a joystick kind of control mm -hmm. um, unless it's you know really close to us um, when the t time delay is negligible so something on the order of milliseconds as opposed to seconds i think that's where you could actually see feasible one-on-one um, -on -one control Outside of that range, we'd probably move to a more manageable state of capturing sensor data and then returning that to the operator as real-time as we can get, and then building up the interface smart enough so that the operator doesn't have to sit and wait for that data to return, that they can plan on existing data and existing zones of error and prediction models. Right? So we have sort of a prototype of this approach actually on our YouTube page Um, just youtube.com slash jpl but yeah I think your your further out question of what other barriers are there to, to VR in this world is in addition to latency it's this you know there's ergonomics there's there's resolution there's price there's comfortableness in this um, in this environment how can we make people not feel sick Right, the, the motion sickness thing has to go away before this becomes a more mass used market. Now for us, it's a little bit easier because our audience, at least initially, will be much smaller. Mm -hmm. Right, We only have to cater to our specialized scientists, engineers, astronauts, 
and these people might, and we might be able to train them to handle these technologies um, better. But like like we were talking about earlier, if we wanted VR to succeed as a whole, it's it's got to be comfortable for a wider audience. Otherwise, you know, there won't be a market for it. Yeah, definitely. Again, you know, I I I gotta go back to the um, idea of using VR in you know with astronauts in space. Um, you know, I I wonder if you guys are thinking about, you know, if 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 that idea were feasible of utilizing it for deep space travel. I, I wonder if uh, you guys also thought about like, well, what would be the long term consequences on the human brain? Um, of using virtual reality, would 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 the user eventually start going through the really the realization process? Um, but but you know overall, like, are are you guys thinking in, in those terms about you know the the benefits and the consequences, potential consequences of, of VR on the human mind? I know there are people who are investigating this specific effect. I unfortunately don't know. Uh, personally, mm -hmm. but I, I can speculate that, you know, for someone who's in such isolation that VR can only help them feel less isolated. Um, it could, you know, of course, it, considering that the experiences themselves are, are, you know, well done and well made and beneficial to them. Um, yeah, I want to move on a little bit in terms of your personal motivations. You know, what you know, just overall, like, what motivates you to get up every day in the morning and and come and do the cool, awesome things that you do. Oh, what motivates me? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, personally, I've always wanted to go into space. I feel like there's so much more to explore out there than anywhere else. And so in doing that, I think I've just grown up with this attitude that I need to participate in space exploration. And the best way for me to do so is to build applications that further space exploration. And I think that, you know, ultimately we're going to have, we're going to be in a state where we can have, um, interfaces that allow us to share this data, to share where we're going with uh, the rest of the public. And I think that's going to be really exciting. Yeah, you know, how, how important do you think is an interface uh, when it comes to, again, in the, the area of space, you know, the, the, can, can you just pull off something very rustic or, or do the, do the, do the astronauts, you know, give you feedback or, 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 or you know, question or tips on like, hey, can you improve this or that? Like, how does how does that process of developing an inter interface look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I think working in this industry for this long, I've learned that the approach is it has there's a lot of steps to the approach. I think if you want to just build any interface, then it's you know it's really easy. You can just build something without involving a lot of people. But to build the right interface involves a lot of um, user research, right? Uh, being able to connect with the user on a level that provides lots of empathy. So it's not just, you know, I think this is what it should be. It's more like, in this scenario, if I were the user or bring in the user and 
involve them in the design and building process and the iteration of this process is what makes or breaks an interface. You know, going back the, to the drawing board or going back to the users from time to time to, to help them invest their time and their expertise into what makes a product function best. I think that's what interface is all about. Very cool. And what is, you know, how does that, you know, um, how does the, for example, do you have any particular specific examples of you working on a project and, you know, what that looked like uh, in terms of, you know, how it all came together? Sure. As a general example, I'd say our work on the sort of building out the Mars environment and having people walk around as if they were on Mars is that, you know, we initially had the idea, right? You always start with an idea, like, we think scientists, or hypothesis, we think scientists can be more effective and, and do their work better if they were immersed in the environment that they were operating in. And our idea, our hypothesis was backed by the fact that, you know, our scientists are geologists. So every day, what their lives are is they go out in the field, they walk around in a, a rock structure, they take pictures, they take the hammer, and then they, they break rocks, they take, and, and they, they take measurements. Mm -hmm. And you know, these are the things we've learned also as we were talking to them, as we researched them and interviewed them about their everyday lives. And of course on a Mars mission, we then take these experts in the field and we put them in front of a 2D computer screen. And then we tell them to make up their minds about what it would be like to plan uh, a science activity on Mars, which is really, really hard. And then we tell them to get into groups of other people, right? There's multiple people, multiple geologists on, on, on the Mars mission, multiple, you know, chemists, multiple biologists. And then they have to come to agreement on their multiply flawed scenarios. And, you know, all of this, of course, we learn from interviewing them and studying the way they work and studying and asking them how they could function better. And then, you know, from there, building out sort of our target of what we could do to improve their situation, which, of course, in this case, was to, to build an immersive environment. So we, we took a sample, um, we took a, a specific site on Mars, we built out a 3D mesh, and we had people walk around it with head tracking, with positional tracking, and then we ran the test through um, a group of about 20 subjects, so 20 expert Mars scientists. And they were doing a simple task, basically picking out five or six rocks in the environment. One in their current mission tool, which we've also developed ourselves. So our current 2D mission tool versus this sort of immersive visualization prototype. Now, granted, it was really early work, but our research came back with some very statistically sound results which is that they were able to analyze and evaluate distances and ang angles on the order of two to three times better in the immersive environment than they were in their um, 2D desktop environment. Wow. And so that was exciting news for us, and that really spawned sort of an excitement and a push to spend more time in this area to research more applications that could make scientists and engineers do their work more effectively and then, of course, as we mentioned earlier, then being able to share the same application to the general public so that they can explore 
alongside us. Is this application by any chance out you know, out on the internet that people can download if they have a Rift or something? Unfortunately, no. It's still early prototype work. Okay. The, you, know, you can find it on our YouTube channel, but there's not really a downloadable at this moment. Mm -hmm. I We're definitely hoping that it'll come out in the near future, but um, no concrete plans. Okay. Um, random question in term why not land if 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 we're going to call if we're serious about colonizing mars why not land near a martian pole where there's ice and we can use that ice to melt it into water um you know why why not do something like that yeah. we we have landed a lander on mars i think it's uh phoenix mm -hmm. the phoenix lander landed on a polarized cap and that's when we strongly confirmed that there was water on Mars. Um, it's definitely much harder to do, right? It's If you were to pick a place to explore on Earth, the North Pole and the South Pole are arguably one of the more, more dangerous places to go to. Mm -hmm. Same with Mars, right? It's, it's hard to land on. It's very treacherous terrain, so being able to land safely... And of course, the temperature there is just so cold that even our spacecraft, the lander, only lasted, I think, a month or so before well, it deteriorated. Yeah. What's the so what's the uh, sorry what's the temperature difference between landing in the equator versus landing uh, on on the poles, for example? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know the specifics. Mm -hmm. We can we can look it up later, but it's. I'll say that the range of temperatures on Mars is anywhere between negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit to, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. Ouch. So generally very cold. And so obviously the more closer to the equator, the more warm it'll be generally. But I think you're looking at like negative 100 degrees or, or so on average. What is What do you think happened to the the water on Mars? You know, what are you? Yeah, what happened to that water? <laughs> How, what? Why did it go away? I think there's a lot of theories out there. Um, we don't know for sure, just because we don't have, we haven't explored it enough to to know for, for a fact. But I mean, part of the reasons why we or we want to explore Mars, why we're studying Mars, is we want to make sure that hey, this doesn't happen to Earth in the future, right? Mm -hmm. If Mars could have supported life or did support life at some point, what happened to it? Right? If it had water there, what happened to it? We know it had an atmosphere at some point, so what happened to it? We knew it had riverbeds and flowing water at some point, so what happened to it? And so these are all these questions. And, and the fun thing is the more we find, the more questions we have. Because we didn't know there was flowing water before. We didn't know there was water maybe a decade ago. So it's really exciting. The more we know, the more want to know and there's just no end to these types of questions yeah if, but you know you feel like uh, you would eventually uh will will I, my hope is that you'll eventually hit the nail on the head and, and figure out okay uh this so and so set of factors wiped out you know the, the atmosphere and the water went away i dried up i don't know what I can, again I'm, I'm completely pulling this out of the top of my head you know and then you, how do you how do you bring that knowledge and use that for humanity? You know, how do you and how do you educate the public and tell them later on 
because it's just what you said earlier like you know it, it happened on mars you know what it, that doesn't what that that doesn't mean it won't ha it wouldn't happen on earth and it's not within the realm of, realm of impossibility um and and again you know this is more of a question like how do you communicate that message you know how do you get how does how does nasa get the message across about saying like this is this is what's up you know because it seems like it's and it's not a it's not a criticism but it feels it feels like it's you're on the search for question for answers and you find questions and questions after question and eventually you know i i feel like you know where do you decide that this is knowledge that people can now humans can now use I think everything we find is knowledge, right? Everything we find is shared directly to the public. Mm -hmm. Some of these facts are shared better than others. Um, but in the case of what happened on Mars, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's hard to say. Like, it could just been something that the, that we can't prevent. Mm -hmm. But if it is something we can prevent, then it's really important for the public to know about. And, of course, we'll share that. I think this is why we're talking about, right, in VR, and how, how can we make the public more... More comfortable with 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 what we're doing, and with more accessible to the data that's coming back. Right? Uh, there's all this stuff that's coming back, and I'm sure there's there's things that sometimes we don't have time to look at. Yeah. Um, you hear stories of you know fifth graders class who got a chance to take a picture with the Mars orbiter, and then found a unique feature that the scientists have made, missed, right? Mm. Or just didn't get get to yet. Um, I think it's exciting. I think. Uh, the next step is just to get more people involved and more people able to contribute directly to the missions at hand. There's nothing more effective than you know having people feel like they're doing work for themselves. You know, that's that's a super that's a super interesting point you've made in terms of I sort of see it a way of crowdfunding the uh, the sort the pace of innovation through through utilizing humanity's hive mind um yeah. and, and that's a and i you know in considering now that we have the internet that seems like it would be it would go hand in hand you know how, how far away are we from developing a system like that that can that can pull in all of the brains uh, from earth to you know uh, explore explore our solar system and universe I mean, crowdsourcing has always been sort of the holy, holy grail of, of exploration and science, right? And I'm sure there's, you guys know of a couple of really good examples out there mm. about you know, having the public analyze the galaxy or analyze a, a DNA structure. Um, there, there are these are few and far in between. I think it's very hard, right? Because you have to build something that is not only rewarding in itself. But also rewarding to the those that contribute time and effort to it, and I don't think NASA has hit upon the perfect crowdsourcing idea yet. But you know, we're always open to hearing these ideas. Um, I, 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 if I could throw my my two cents in there, I, if you can model the Reddit uh, way of doing things, sort of like the upvote system, the best ideas get voted to the top, and you know, hmm. you'd eventually. Uh, you pick the person, you know, pick the person who or potentially has put in the most time and the most effort because the hive mind decided, you know, fil filters out itself. Um, yes. Yeah. 
I, just a random idea. What do you think it's going to take for humans to have a permanent presence on Mars? What will it take for, for that to happen? I think it'll take international competition to drive that. I think if we just stay the way we are, we'll get there eventually, right? Sometime this century, hopefully. But what's going to really drive that is one or two com countries will come out and say, hey, we stake claim to this part of Mars, or not even stake claim, but like we're going to go there and build a habitat there first. And then we're going to get back to the, you know, the space race again, which is really exciting for us. So in essence, we have to leverage humanities or our society's reactionary condition. Like where we, 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 it's, it's hard to, to get people to be proactive about, about something. And so we'll have to leverage just like the race to the moon. We, we had to yep. leverage that com competitive aspect. Um, so what, who do you think is going to step up? Do you think it's going to be China? Do you think it's going to be Japan, Russia? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I hope it's NASA, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we have the most funding, we have the best people, but you know, that could change in a decade. That could change in two decades. I, I honestly, I think what's really cool about the space industry is that there's really no winners or losers, right? When, when a mission fails, we all win. And, and when a mission fails, we all lose as, as a whole. And so mm -hmm. in that sense, it's really cool because we're, we're all very supportive of each other in this industry. You know, when, when ESA or India or China or Russia does something really great, we're happy because it returns more on our investment, right? And as a whole, space exploration wins. And so I, I think that's... I think any country, any organization, even if it's private, that gets out there and makes their mark, it's going to benefit the rest of us. One, another. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't mean to get too uh, dark here, but you know, I I feel like there's a a subset of people in our society that utilize fear to uh, push their agenda to get things done. Um, and and I don't like going this route, but do you think it'd be a good on a more from a moralistic perspective i struggle with this a lot because here we are humans uh on this you know lonely piece of rock floating in space and there's so much out there for us to know and explore and we're yeah. not taking advantage of it we're, we're really not and to the extent that we should and so you know i, I feel like I, I, we you know what I feel like if people are utilizing fear to get us to go to war, to get us to, you know, uh, be prejudiced against others, like, why can't we use that same tool to move us into outer space? And by fear, I'm, I'm saying, like, you, you know, giving people the perspective that there's there's these low probability, low probability, but like really high cost events that could happen if Yellowstone erupts. We're screwed if uh, a comet, com you know, if a comet comes by that we can't detect and hits, you know, uh, you name it, major city, um, that would cause in, you know, madness. Uh, yeah. And so, it, why hedge our bets? And 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 if using that fear or or that perspective, like, 
is that is that morally wrong do you think that we should just you know go just keep pushing the route we're going trying to inspire people or can we just scare the hell out of people into getting off their butts and being passionate about you know you know at least hedging our bets as a, as a species yeah i i mean i think you hit on a couple points there the you know there's of course the asteroid scare right the the test for humanity, right? Whether whether we're ready for asteroids, and that's of course sort of a a motivation by fear, and fear is a really strong motivator. I think the question is whether the effects of that motivation are are positive or not, right? And I think if you think of it in on sort of a long term scale, I think in the short term it's gonna it might it may work, right? It may get people more interested in doing something be out of fear that something bad will happen if they don't do something. Mm-hmm. But in the long term, I, I would worry that the returns wouldn't, you know, the focus would be in the wrong perspective. They would, they would be looking towards it as, as a sort of, you know, in the, in the wrong angle. Whereas I think it really, really should be looking at it in the positive light of sort of expanding our knowledge and and finding innovation, doing impossible things that push us into doing possible things. Hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you on that. Except there is that part of my brain, that other side of my brain, that says, you know what, man, it's you could you could use you could you know you could use fire with fire. Um, but moving on, you know, uh, there's people who might say. Uh, and I've run into this once. Someone told me, you know, if is virtual if virtual reality gets really, really good within the next ten years, then uh, that person made the assumption that human beings will probably not want to leave their houses, and it will be so good that you can't distinguish reality, and you'll have space games and and space exploration experiences that will mimic, um, you know, that will cross the uncanny valley, and therefore it will make humans not want to at least. Uh, not want to explore, you know. What's your take on that opinion? You know, will 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 that will that will that happen, or you know, will it will be the op- absolute reverse? Yeah, I think there's a lot of movies out there that speak to this point, right? Like what happens when our whole society is, you know, just in a bubble and you never have to leave your home because you can explore everything from your home. Um, I'm optimistic that VR will go in a different route. Um, you know, people have said this about uh, playing video games or, you know, investing, investigating in uh, reading a book or something like that, that, that that would entrap them in this world. But I think instead of entrapping them in the world, I think it's going to be, be expanding their world. I think what's currently not talked about enough is the potential that VR has in the social aspect, right? So how can VR potentially push people to interact with people even more than they currently do? Because mm-hmm. if, if, right, a lot of the applications built right now are a lot of first-person, hey, you get into this thing, look around, hey, you're done, right? But what if, what if you could interact with other people across the world all the time and leave a mark? I think that's going to spawn a whole set of responses, a whole spawn, a whole set of ambitions to go and and get get outside of your world and interact with other people. 
I think we're also going to see, you know, right now there's a lot of VR that's very closed loop, right? You, you do something and it, it, it tells you, uh, you, you get an immediate feedback that doesn't also require you to really get up and move around. I think as VR gets better, we're going to see more of a push for applications that don't envelop your world entirely. Right, so things that are more subliminal or things that are more part of your everyday life that not only enhances your life, but I think will promote you to, to again, want to interact with other individuals who are in this environment. Random question about farming in on Mars. Will it be possible to um, bring a, a giant 3D printer that will print out a, a greenhouse deck and then, and then you can, you know, grow your own food on Mars? I mean, is that something that could be uh, feasible or too far away from from our, on our from our lifetime i mean i've heard of a lot of these research projects or ideas of a center giant 3d printer build habitats so that you know we can bring less material and of course it's a it's a it's a great opportunity for space exploration because you know the most expensive cost is the fuel right launching the thing and so mm -hmm. the less we have to take out there the less fuel we have to spend, the cheaper our launches, the more launches we can do, etc. I think we're well on a good path for that. I think we've just shipped or are about to just ship the first 3D printer to the space station. And so that's supposed to help build reusable tools for the astronauts. And, you know, it's just one small leap ahead to, to see us doing some more of that on a grander scale. Yeah, that sounds amazing because a 3D, I mean, it's just being able to 3D print something that broke on the, on the, on the spaceship or on the space station would be a, a huge, um, a, you know, financial benefit to you guys because you don't have to like send the part yeah. down to Earth, bring it back. Um, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about, like, what, you know, how, how you know, VR will be, I think not just a, a a machine to be able to teleport to different places, but also an empathy creation machine um, where you will see the world through the eyes of someone else. And you know, I wonder if if, if one day we'll be able to live stream uh, from the astronaut's perspective, you know, a, a day in the life of an astronaut, and then we'll all go on Twitch or Ustream and and or then see. Uh, think the the world as they experience it throughout their day. You know, what do you think we would see? You know, what does that a, a, a typical day look like for someone up there? Sure, I mean, that's. I think that's going to be a very straightforward implementation. There's already cameras on the space station. There's all sorts of vehicles for for streaming video and things like that. I think it'll be great if we can have people explore what it's like to be. An astronaut. Um, what does it look like for an astronaut on a normal day? Uh, it's they have a very packed schedule that is you know pretty much nailed down to the minute. Lots of scientific experiments. Uh, they basically there's only a couple of them up there, right? So they they have to do and operate experiments for everybody on the ground. So scientists send up petitions for experiments. They send them up there. These astronauts have to do them for them. You know experiments in microgravity. Um, how how a dissection would happen, how um, you know plants grow, things like that. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, of course, there's there's the exercise that they do. They have to do a set amount of exercise every day, set amount of sleep, 
set amount of public outreach, you know, getting in front of the camera and doing some cool, neat trick for a class or dialing into a classroom or um, that kind of thing. In addition, of course, then they have a small amount of the time for personal activities. Right? So, you know, of course, in the public, there's a, you've been seeing a lot of cool videos of astronauts singing songs or taking cool pictures or videos. That type of thing falls into that category. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the music video from Commander Hatfield, uh, where he was playing a, a beautiful, beautiful song on his guitar. Uh, so that was, yeah, yeah. So that's definitely. I mean, it, I wish we paid as much attention to people like yourself and people that are up there as much as we pay attention to celebrities in our culture. But it's, um, it's. I think I think we'll get there. Hopefully, we'll get there. Um, yeah, in our century. Do you think, I know this is a bit of a far-fetched question, but in our century, do you think that we will witness the birth of the first human to um, be born not on Earth? Uh, I think that's a very fun topic of dis discussion. Uh, I think, well, if, we were, if we're thinking that we would send people to Mars, I think it's, it's going to have to happen at some point. The question is, how will it be controlled, right? Like, is it just going to be kind of a, you know, born in a laboratory type of thing? How how are we going to maintain the... We, we have no idea what's going to happen when we do this in a different gravity environment. There are speculations that, you know, if, if, if a human was born in a lower gravity, that their bodies or their bone structure may not conform to Earth gravity. Mm -hmm. So it could be a thing where, yeah, sure, you have a space baby, but then they can't ever come back to Earth. But then again, you have, of course, you have the reverse scenario of, of we were born on Earth, and at some point, hopefully, we'll be able to go to Mars and beyond, mm -hmm. and we're just going to have to build systems that support ourselves. Yeah, it, it, that is an extremely fascinating question, and I, and I wonder how that will be worked out. Do you think the solution lies in uh, engineering a new form of ship uh, that can generate gravity in and of itself, or, or do we have to engineer down at the molecule, down at the DNA levels, a, a new form of human that can you know, adapt to this new environment? I think it's going to take a lot more research to see. I mean, we have no idea at this point. Like, I, I don't even know if there's any animal studies, right, and animal births in space. It's it's such a open field of, of, of research because, you know, what if you conceived on Earth but then had the baby somewhere else? Or what if you, the entire um, duration you were in microgravity? What does that mean? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't even begin to speculate. Yeah, it's a, cr a crazy topic of discussion. And I wonder, has NASA ever had mice give birth in, in, on, in microgravity before? I'm not sure. Okay. My understanding is that there was a recent mice study for reproduction, and somehow it didn't go well. Oh. It didn't happen or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I forgot if that was NASA or Russia. Yeah, I know there was a, a shrimp farm that was going up into um, to the ISS with uh, with the the rocket that recently exploded, the Antares one. Yeah, um, they were trying to study, you know, the the effect on the shrimp. That yeah, the whole, space, all 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 in all, is is a, is a topic topic of huge fascination for me. 
Um, I know it's not NASA's mandate, but like, are you guys experimenting with deep ocean exploration at all, um, or or going down to the Earth's core somehow? <laughs> I think we actually have a research station underwater. I forget where, but I think it's near one of the trenches. Um, we definitely do a lot of simulation work underwater, right? Because it's a cheaper version of going into space. Mm-hmm. So not only do we train astronauts underwater, but I think we take experiments and we dive deep in the ocean and we study things like, you know, isolation and and different pressurization of suits. Like if you look at a deep underwater pressure suit, it actually has a lot of similarities with a extra vehicular activity suit from the space station. Some something that a person has to go outside and do activities with. So, yeah, definitely a lot of correlation. A lot of, you know, one is looking up and one's looking down deep. Um, both really cool spaces to explore. Um, obviously, I'm more passionate about the, 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 the deep space. But cool. You know, um, just sort of bringing, bringing things to a close, I, you know, what do you think um, by the end of the century, do you, how do you, how, how many humans will be out? in outer space like right now there's like four or five um but you know well yeah. my hope is that with as the technology progresses the the medium for us to get up there will be cheaper and cheaper um the, you know just your hope what's the hope for you for you know how many people by the end of the century can could be out up there whether on the moon mars or just in low earth orbit for example i mean Obviously, my hope is that it's a number that we don't care about anymore. Right? Mm. It's a, a number that's just like, well, how many people are in Europe? We don't even care anymore, right? Because it's, it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the essence of our discussion of VR, my hope is that regardless of how many p- people are physically out there, if we can share what's out there with the general public in a way that makes everyone feel like they can go there, then I think we've won. Yeah. What do you think? What does NASA need uh, uh, most of at this point? Is it funding? Is it more engineers? Is it more uh, attention from the public? Um, what What are the things that you guys are, are really looking for to have more of? I think you've hit three of the big ones. I think another big one is just sort of political motivation, right? And you're not getting too deep into that. This is basically what we talked about. Of, if there was more of a drive to go out there, that would spawn more attention from the public, that would spawn more funding, and that would spawn more engineers and scientists and other individuals that would like to apply and work with us. Yeah. Um, so it's all sort of in that same circle. Um, basically motivation that will drive funding, which will drive everything else. Yeah, so in, in in essence, you you have to scale up NASA for it to become a giant jobs program that senators cannot run from. I mean, is is basically right? Like, because you know, and I, you don't have to go here with me. Uh, this is I'll walk this road alone. But this F thirty five plane is a complete mess. Um, you, they they spent so much money on it, and I I feel like. With the amount of money we they spent on it, we might as well have had Starship Troopers, you know, um, uh, with just just 
it's yeah it's crazy the political uh, aspect of it it's it's insane you know just the f investing on the future where is the common sense here but again you don't have to go here <laughs> um, well I think to touch on a short briefly it's obviously there's funding our government puts funding where we feel like it's a good investment right? mm -hmm. where there's where there is a good return on their investment and I think for NASA we just need to do a better job of specifying how much return they're getting right it's mm -hmm. We're getting a ton of investment, but well, we're getting a ton of return on our investment. It's just it's hard to iterate what those things are sometimes. There's not a really like direct monetary gain. Mm -hmm. A lot of these returns are on the orders of decades, right? Like how do you how do you you know itemize the amount of inspiration that was caused by the landing of the moon on the decades of engineers and scientists that followed up from that? Like it's it's really hard to, to, to leverage that, to, to itemize that, and then even harder to leverage that for a funding case. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, quantifying the amount of engineers uh, in your country and the value that they add compared to others, um, that's a that's a very interesting. If, you know, trying to figure that, that's a very interesting way to look at it. But in and out of itself, you, you know, what is the return on investment for colonizing Mars? You know, how, how do you pitch that to uh, the political class um, if, or the public? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard pitch, right? And then I think it's going to have to take maybe some of these private companies to figure that out. To, to figure out a short return on investment so that we invest time and resources in the technologies that will enable us to do a more long-term investment. That's, that's in, in short, I think, what NASA is best at. Right? Like we're, we're, we're not the best at finding financial rewards mm -hmm. or quick returns on investment mm -hmm. for, for the private industry. I think what we do best is push the boundaries of what can be done because no one else has the funding to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's the right that's the right route to take. Um, but if but if I were to start a space company, I would use fear to invest <laughs> to get people to invest in my Mars colony. Um, that's I, one way I, to do it. Yeah, I'm like, uh, hey, listen. Yeah, we're not going to be around forever, um, and we don't know if tomorrow's our last day on planet Earth, so come along. Uh, why not hedge our bets? Victor, uh, you have been a, uh, an amazing, uh, true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality and space. Um, thank you so much for your time. You know, do you have any last or you know final thoughts in your head that you, you'd like to let out before we start bringing things to a close? No, I just... Uh... Thanks a lot for your time. It's really fun to chat about some of the most exciting topics for myself personally. And I, I, I think that, you know, hopefully in the near future we'll get people more and more excited about space by using this venue of virtual reality. Yeah, you, you guys uh, pushing the, 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 the boundaries of knowledge should be celebrities. It should be idolized. Should be um, should have your own reality TV shows. I, I wonder uh, would that how would that look like? A re reality TV show? Yeah, with engineers only. Oh, uh, 
I don't think it would be as exciting to watch as, you know, the Kardashians or something. <laughs> um, well, it would definitely be a better use of my time than watching the Kardashians. Um, but, yeah, I'm super excited. For, good luck on the uh, on, on getting accepted to, to be part of that Mars pro yeah, project. Um, and uh, how can people stay in touch? How can people follow what you're doing and, and support all the cool stuff that you're up to? Uh, well, my website is at uh, vicluo.com, V-I-C-L-U-O.com. And I guess you can follow me on Instagram at Victor Rocks. Nice. Um, once again, Victor Lowe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Take care, Chris.